Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Defense Department ranks high among federal agencies seeking expertise in quantum computing, the next big thing in computing. DOD agencies have established several ways to recruit and hire people with chops in quantum subskills, but the Government Accountability Office finds they're not all following the best practices for getting the people they need. More now from the GAO's Director of Science, Technology Assessment and Analytics, Candace Wright. Ms. Wright, always good to have you back. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again. And I guess that's an enduring issue. And this is the latest manifestation of the idea of human capital management and getting those bodies in for quantum. Give us the big picture here on this particular report. Indeed. Well, as you know, the U.S. government certainly faces challenges meeting its science and technology workforce needs. This has been something that's been widely reported, and quantum science is one of those areas. It's a nascent and evolving area. It requires highly specialized skill sets that are not widely available, but yet in high demand. We certainly find that quantum technology development is critical to national security and maintaining DOD's military advantage, especially in areas such as cryptography, computing, and sensing. So it's really imperative that that the department develop its workforce to remain competitive in this field. And what are some of those particular fields they need people in? Well, this area is certainly one that's multidisciplinary, and it can draw on uh, several disciplines like physics, engineering, computer science, and math, to name a few. One of the things that we encountered as we were charged with examining the department's quantum workforce planning and workforce development efforts is that defining the quantum workforce is really challenging. There isn't an existing occupational series, again, because of the multidisciplinary nature of this area. And so given that it's new and emerging uh, or nascent and emerging, you know, it's unclear what direction the field will go and more importantly, what the mix of professions will be. And so in light of this, we had our work cut out for us to identify the quantum workforce at DOD. So instead of defining the workforce using an existing occupational series, what we ended up doing was uh, reporting on personnel who are assigned to projects in the four defense labs in our scope. And so that was the Air Force, Army, and Naval Research Laboratories, as well as Naval Information Warfare Center Pacific. In doing this work, we found that DOD could tell us that there were about 255 staff who were working all or part of their time on quantum sensing, computing, and communications projects. Most of these staff have have PhDs, and they were either physicists or engineers, and some of them were actually specialists in chemistry, computer science, and math. We did find overall that the labs that were in our scope were generally following leading practices for strategic workforce planning, meaning that they had identified the critical skills and competencies, they had developed workforce planning strategies, and set up administrative and other infrastructure to to be able to make progress in this area. So what were you looking at here? Sounds like everything is in place. They've got the people and the ways to get them in. Indeed, they certainly had these plans in place. But one of the things that we really saw was that there was a need for them to have mechanisms in place to monitor their progress against these plans and to make sure that they had a way to evaluate if they were uh, making progress. And so with that in mind, we did make four recommendations to the the labs to address the gaps that we identified. Again, because we we think that while it's important to have the plans in place, you want to make sure that you have a way to uh, assess progress, want to make sure that you uh, are engaging the right leadership and organizational partners as you execute the plan so that you can make adjustments as needed along the way. 
We're speaking with Candace Wright. She's Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the Government Accountability Office. And these practices then apply for, I guess, any kind of specialized work that the department might be doing as a way of just making sure that all workforces are correct and that your planning for them and your assessment of them are all in place. Fair to say? Indeed. These practices are not unique to quantum workforce needs and really apply as you think about workforce planning across the federal government, but they are really important important in these emerging areas, especially when there are very highly specialized skill sets and that maybe are not widely available and DOD might be competing with other federal agencies for these skills, but then also private sector entities as well. And so having plans in place that uh, allow them to adopt these practices will better ensure that the department can identify the skills that are needed, acquire the skills and talent that are necessary for them to build and maintain their uh, U.S. global leadership in quantum technologies. Yeah, the hiring and recruiting has to be not so ad hoc, but according to a plan and then you monitor, are the requirements being matched with the people we've got here? Planning is essential. As you know, the old adage goes, failing to plan is a plan to fail. But it's also important to make sure that you're monitoring progress against those plans. All right. So your recommendations, you had them for the Army, the Navy, another one for the Navy, another one for the Navy, uh, not so much for the Air Force. But what are you recommending here? So we're really recommending that they implement mechanisms to be able to monitor and evaluate the progress. I'll note that the department did concur with the recommendations. And again, I want to make clear that we did find that they were generally following these practices, but these are other elements that we think that they could improve upon to make sure that they have you know, the most robust and effective process in place. Because there is no, as you pointed out, job series that is described has the name quantum computing on it, but yet there are quantum programs and program executive offices and programs covering quantum by name in the military. That's kind Mm -hmm. of a, a little irony there. Indeed. And I think part of the challenge is because it is such a new area, an evolving area, there's still a need to understand, you know, what are the skill sets that are really needed? And, you know, how do you then determine the skill sets that align with the with the needs of the department? And, and this is the case, certainly ac- across the board for many emerging areas. So with that in mind, you know, it's at least important for the department to identify the, the competencies and skill sets, which it has done. And we think that that's certainly a good step in the right direction. It seems like there's an opportunity here, and this might not have been part of the report, but other agencies in the civilian side, energy and so on, are pursuing expertise in quantum and trying to understand what the implications are for when quantum actually becomes something practical. It could be decades. It might be never, but it could be, you know, in a few years, you just never know that there could be some government-wide collaboration on what do we need here for our quantum chops in the future. Yes. And so I'll highlight two things. Um, You know, we last year issued a technology assessment on quantum computing and communications. And one of the things that came out in the course of that work was really the need for the U.S. to build its quantum workforce. That can be done through existing programs, through job training programs or educational programs, but it might also require creating new ones to be able to meet the needs and expand the workforce. We certainly have also seen that there's legislation activity in this area. There was the National Quantum Initiative Act in 2018 that also highlighted the need to invest in uh, quantum workforce development. That uh, act is actually up for reauthorization this year, and there's been a House bill that's been introduced this month, or excuse me, last month in November, and that also included uh, some provisions to focus on strengthening quantum workforce, but also STEM development programs. 
And one thing we do know is that quantum computing doesn't look in any way, shape, or form, whether it's the programming for or the hardware, doesn't even look like computers. Some of the quantum machines that are out there now look like a contraption that's nothing like a standard computer. So it really is a unique skill set, even if it yet needs to be further defined. Definitely. And I think agencies are are wrestling with that issue as well. I did want to mention, though, Tom, um, some of the STEM programs that DOD has in place, because that was another part of the work, was for us to survey the department to identify STEM education programs that exist and can be a means to grow the pipeline uh, to meet the department's needs. So in in this portion of the work, we identified that DOD had 41 uh, different STEM programs. There were about uh, at least 400 students and postdoctoral researchers who had participated in these programs in order to gain work experience at the defense laboratories. Two programs that I'll highlight, which we talk about in the work, are the Army and NSA Quantum Computing Graduate Research Fellowship. And this is a fellowship program that supports students and postdocs working on quantum information processing and quantum sensing projects. There's actually another program um, called the Science, Mathematics, and Research Transformation Program. And of course, the acronym for that is SMART. Offers students full tuition, stipends, internships, and even guaranteed employment at DOD if they pursue STEM degrees in areas like physics, engineering, and computer science. So for your listeners who are going to be, you know, with family over the holidays, wanted to just, you know, be a good public servant here and mention some of these opportunities that they can then share with family members. All right. We'll make for an exciting table on, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm on that sure. Christmas dinner. <laughs> Candace Wright is Director of Science, Technology Assessment, and Analytics at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. My pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, 
I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, 
and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, 
I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.